0: Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through and for him. And he is before all things, and in him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. God, thank you for today. Thank you for giving us... Yet another time to come and worship you and learn about you and to dwell in your presence with fellow believers. As we are receiving this word that you've given to Rick today, allow our hearts to be open and our minds to be saturated with thoughts of you and how you are at work, God, and allow the words. Of our hearts and our meditations together be acceptable in your sight our rock and our Redeemer in your name we pray amen Amen.
1: so it is good to see everyone this morning if you have your Bible with you and I hope you do please go ahead and turn with me to the book of Colossians we're gonna be looking at the verses that were just read in Colossians chapter 1 Uh, if you don't have a Bible the verses will be on the screen if you don't own a Bible. If I could turn your attention to one of these around you, um, this is our gift to you. If you don't own your own Bible, we want everyone to have their own copy. So if you see one of those, that is for you to have. So again, we're going to be in Colossians. Colossians is in the New Testament. It is right after the book of Philippians. It's right be- before the book of First Thessalonians. And uh, I'm going to warn you a little bit, it's actually going to take me a little bit of time to get into the text that we're going to be camping out in this morning. So hold your finger there in place or just keep your app open, you know, whichever, whichever one works for you. And we'll get there as soon as I possibly can get us there. But we're continuing on in a series that we've entitled Distinct. And what we're doing in this series is that we're examining what it is that makes Christianity distinct from other religions, other worldviews, other faiths that are that are in the world. So what is it that makes Christianity distinct? There is a a growing belief in the world that all religions lead to the same ends, that they're basically uh, all different equal paths to the u- same ultimate reality, that they all point to the same truth, that they all worship the same God. And what we're doing in this series is that we're putting that to the test. We're testing out to see if that is in fact the case. Um, My first gig in ministry, so my first gig in vocational paid ministry as like an official pastor somewhere, I was college and singles pastor at Apex Baptist Church. And I'll, I'll go so far as to say this. If I, if I wasn't a lead pastor somewhere, that is precisely what I would want to be doing. I would want to be with 18 to 25-year-olds all the time because they're not children. Because I'm not a kid's person, and they're not you. They're not adults, like real grown-up adults, right? Because you're ornery cusses. So I'd rather be with those 18 to 25-year-olds, those 18 to 25-year-olds, because there's just something about those folks, those idealistic believers, that are just hungry for God, and I just love being around it. It's infectious to be around that kind of a ravenous appetite for God, so it's cool. Anyway... Um, I was leaving Apex Baptist. I had been called to, to go be a part of a different church and be on staff at another church. And so what I wanted to do is that I, and, and me and Jamie did this. We invited our college and singles group over to the house for like a, a big old bang, like a party. You know, we just wanted to have a big old goodbye, goodbye party with everyone. Um, and I did want to go out with a bang. So I decided to play a trick on all the, the youngsters, these young, innocent, idealistic uh, young people. Uh, what, what we did, what I did is that I took peanut butter, and I took oatmeal, and I, I mixed them together. That sounds pretty good so far, right? I made these little, like, peanut butter oatmeal balls, and we dipped them in chocolate. So we just peanut butter chocolate truffle things, right? Though so That's good. That's pretty yummy. But then I decided to make some diabolical imposters. So I took star-kissed tuna fish, drained it out, Packed it with mayo, dipped it in the chocolate, right? And the thing, if you're looking at the tray, because I put, I put them all intermixed together, like these really good, yummy peanut butter chocolate truffles, and in there were these diabolical tuna fish chocolate yeah. truffles, which just sounds ridiculous, and, and it sounds awful, and you couldn't tell the difference. And to my heart's delight... I got to stand next to the table that had all the good food, right? We had all this good food. And I'm watching as these young, innocent, idealistic, young people who trust a pastor, right? Who just come over to the table, and they're grabbing stuff. And the first 10, they get the good stuff. They grab it, and I'm watching, and they get it. like, this is great, because it's the peanut butter, right, and the chocolate. And oh, the poor soul. I can still remember it. I can still see the look on their face when they grabbed one of those diabolical imposters and they bit into it. Folks, their, their life ceased for, for a whole, like, few seconds. Like, everything that they thought they understood about the world completely stop. Like, they had an existential crisis in that moment. Up was down, left was right. I mean, they, nothing made sense. All of us, it was like as if they all of a sudden had to re-experience what it was like to learn that Santa Claus isn't real. Like, everything just blew up in their face in that, in that moment. It was like, um, you know how the look on someone's face when they grab for the sweet tea and it's accidentally unsweet tea you know the look on someone's face imagine someone's reaching for sweet tea and they get a glass of tuna water right like I mean that in essence is, is what it was and it was and just so that you know it wasn't just me it's actually Jamie who made the tuna fish chocolate truffles so I'll throw her under the bus this morning so anyway that person still hasn't forgiven me for that but I had a blast and I had fun and I'm using it as a sermon illustration years later so who knew but anyway so here you go Would you say that there is a distinct difference between a peanut butter chocolate truffle and a tuna fish chocolate truffle? A universe of difference, right? There's infinity, (laughs) basically, between the two. Uh, But if you're looking at them on that platter, you would not have been able to tell the difference. And the only way for you to have known ahead of time is for you to actually have looked underneath the surface, to actually cut it open maybe, and to get a look at what was on the, on the inside. And that's what's happening in the world around us, that many, most of our religions on the surface look very similar. You can't really, you can't really tell the difference. Like, people get together, they worship, they sing, they pray, they go through religious rituals of all sorts. Right? They give money, they serve, there's a code that you're supposed to live by. Don't cheat, don't lie, don't steal, take your vitamins. Like, like basically all the world religions kind of on the surface just really, really look like, yes, I quoted Hokamania as a world religion, so there you go. Anyway, there, but there is a huge rel- a r- difference between the religions once you look underneath the surface just a little bit and so the question to us is how do you know which one is right how can we know of all these countless religions in the world how can we know which one is right and we want to know this because we don't want to get stuck spiritually speaking we don't want to get stuck with an eternal tuna fish truffle we want the good stuff We want what is right, what is good, what is true, what is lovely, what is pure. We want that which is right, which is correct. So in this series, what we're doing is that we're cutting the truffles, looking inside to see what is on the actual inside of what it is that we believe. So two weeks ago, we began this series by looking at the question of God and comparing what Christianity says about God versus what other religions say about God. And last week we looked at what uh, Christianity, what the Bible says about people, about us, who we are, our purpose, our origin, and all of that. Compared that to what other religions say about people and humanity. And so this week we are looking at champions. We're taking a look at the various champions. Every religion has a champion. Every religion has a hero Christianity is no different. All the others are no different. Everyone has a hero. So really what I want to do this morning is compare what Christianity says about Jesus, our champion, our hero, versus what other religions say about Jesus to see if there's any similarity or if there's anything different. So we're going to begin. We're going to walk through a few religions here with everyone. The first one, Judaism. Let's begin with the Jewish religion, the Judaism. So the Jewish Bible, what we Christians refer to as the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible just foretells of a Messiah. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, God has promised repeatedly over and over and over again that he would send a Messiah and this Messiah would make everything right again. So he would take away that sin and the, the death that was ushered in through that sin. And he would get rid of it. And this this universe, the planet, humanity that fell into sin, it would be restored the way that it's supposed to be. And in the Old Testament, it's a story. Prophet after prophet, prof, prophet after prophet, reaffirming, restating this promise From God, that this Messiah, this Deliverer, would one day come and he would usher in the kingdom of God into the world, make everything right, put us back where we're supposed to be, and we would be free. God's people would be free of political tyranny, governmental oppression, and more than anything, free of sin and its consequences and the heartbreak and the brokenness and death and all of that. Well, here comes Jesus, a Jew and he's walking around Bethlehem, and he's walking around Samaria, and Judea, and all of Israel, and he's walking around. He's a, he's a Jew, and he says, he claimed, I'm the one that God has foretold. I'm, I'm the one that God promised. I'm the Messiah. Well, some Jews believed him, and that's what gave rise to Christianity. The overwhelming majority of Jews did not believe they, in fact, denounced Jesus. They, they rejected that Jesus was the Messiah. So to the Jew, like a true religious Jew, I don't mean just a one who lives in Israel or one who's ethnically Jewish, to a, a religious Jew, Jesus is really a heretic. Jesus is a false teacher. Jesus is a false prophet. Um, that's why they executed him or or why they handed him over to the Romans 2,000 years ago to be killed. Jesus, in essence, came. I said, I'm the Messiah. And they said, no, you're not God. You're not sent from God. You're not of God. There's nothing divine. What you're saying is blasphemy. What you're saying violates our entire religious belief. So we're going to turn you over for execution, which is what the Old Testament says you do with a false prophet. So they believed him to to be that. So they say, nope, he's not the Messiah. All right, what about Islam? What does the religion of Islam say about Jesus? Interestingly, they actually have a higher opinion of Jesus than the the Jew does. Here's how I can say this. They actually believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. They actually believe that Jesus was a miracle worker. And they actually believe that Jesus was a prophet. He was one of the prophets. Now, they, don't, they only think he's a prophet, nothing more. And they don't think that he's the greatest prophet. So in the, in the Muslim religion, the greatest prophet is known as Muhammad. Muhammad is the greatest prophet. Uh, furthermore, Islam does not believe that Jesus came to die for our sins because according to Islamic belief, we don't need a savior. We don't need a savior at all. All we need, we are saved by the grace of God and by pursuit of holy deeds. So it's, God is gracious, but you also must live a certain way. You, almost, you always have to do certain deeds and stuff, right? So it's not just grace. It's grace and works together. So you don't need a Savior. Uh, they don't believe that Jesus was crucified. They actually believe that Jesus was taken up to heaven before he physically died, and a person was actually crucified in Jesus's place. So it wasn't Jesus. God replaced someone else and put him in his place, and because Jesus didn't die, there was no need for the, our word rhymes with resurrection, the resurrection. Okay, so they don't believe in the crucifixion. They don't believe in the resurrection. All right, what about Mormonism? Mormonism literally teaches that we are little brothers and sisters of Jesus. He is literally our big brother. So I shared this last week because a lot of folks don't know this about Mormonism. That according to Mormon belief, God is in heaven and he has millions of spiritual concubines in heaven. He's literally having physical relations with these concubines, concubines and he's producing spiritual babies in heaven. This is what Mormon believes. And so to them, the person that we know as Jesus was simply that first one that was produced. He's the first born in heaven, the, the first born in creation, the first one born to God the Father. What's interesting is that the person that they call the devil, that we would call the devil, is second. It's The next one that was born is the second one who was born of God. So there's no difference between Jesus and the devil other than Jesus got born first. And we then are number 8 billion, 9 billion, 10 billion, somewhere along the line. And then you put all that together. What it means is that there's, in essence, no difference between us and Jesus other than he was born first and we're just down the line. He was created just like we were created, born just like we're born. How about Hinduism? What does Hinduism say about Jesus? Uh, Hinduism, they believe in God, but not God in the way that those of us that are Westerners or those of us who are Christian would think of God. To them, God is completely unknowable. God is not a personal being. God is an it. God is actually a spiritual energy, a cosmic life force that permeates throughout the universe. And they believe in millions of gods and goddesses, little g, not capital G, little g, millions of gods and goddesses. But these are not actually individual gods and goddesses. These are manifestations of that one life force. So this, this one life force that binds the universe together manifests itself through these individuals like Vishnu and Shiva, like they're the more famous Hindu gods. And to a lot of Hindus, Jesus is nothing more than one of these millions of gods, nothing more than one of these millions of manifestations of this cosmic life force. Buddhism. Buddhism is non-theistic. What I mean by that is that They don't care whether there is or isn't a God. They actually think it's an irrelevant question. It does not matter whether there is God or not. So whoever Jesus may be doesn't matter. If he's God, doesn't matter. If he's some other person, does not matter. It has no bearing whatsoever with anything. So what do they think about Jesus? Nothing. Doesn't matter. All right. So that's what other religions say about Jesus. Now, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about Jesus Christ? So that's where we're getting to this Colossians chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 15, going through verse 20. And we're going to get a good look inside this truffle to see what's inside of it. And there's eight truths that I want to share that I believe that this text points to us. Eight truths about who Jesus is is, and, and I'm going to warn you, I want to come to a couple of people a little earlier. Um, I genuinely hope that you're thirsty this morning because what's about to happen over the next 20 minutes or so is drinking out of a fire hydrant. Alright, so we got some slides, I think, to help you keep up, but I'm going to lose you. Just ask me afterwards what was that point? What did you say there? What was the scripture reference? I'll be happy to share. So, if you're thirsty, let's roll. Alright, truth number one about Jesus. Jesus is God. Truth number one, Jesus is God. Look at Colossians chapter one, verse 15. It says, he, referring to Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And what we saw last week when we went through Genesis chapter one, we saw that Genesis chapter one teaches us that we are made in the image and the likeness of God we're made in the image of God. That's not true of Jesus. Jesus was not made in the image of God. We're made in the image of God to reflect the glory of God. Jesus is the glory of God, the very glory of God. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2, referring to Christ, says he is the radiance, the radiance of the glory of of God. To say that Jesus is the image of God or the the glory of God is to say that in Christ, the fullness of the nature and the being, the essence of the fullness of God is revealed through Jesus. We get to see God in Christ because Christ is God and he reveals him to us. He discloses who God is to us Perfectly. And again, in in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, the one I I just partly quoted, it says that he is the exact imprint of his nature. The exact, he's not kind of sort of. He's not more mostly, he is the exact same imprint of God. Which is to say that he is God, right? There's nothing that's the glory of God other than God. There's nothing that's the imprint of God other than God. He is, he is God. Colossians chapter 2 verse 9 says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The fullness, the totality of who God is resides in who? In Jesus. In Christ. He discloses him to us. He's the glory of God. That's why... His name in Scripture is Emmanuel, which means God with us. So God came down to be with us. He was born 2,000 years ago in Israel. And God dwelt with us. He dwelt among us. He is God with us, the very presence of God with humanity. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 says, The Lord is one. The Lord is one. And, and what we have to understand is that there is only God, there's only one God, but God exists in three persons. God is Trinity. He's triune, three in one. So while there is only one God, this magnificent, marvelous God exists in a form that we can't quite fathom. There's only one God, but he exists in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Like each one is fully God. So God the Father is fully God. God the Son is fully God. God the Holy Spirit is fully God. Each person of the Godhead fully possesses all the attributes, all the nature, all the essence, all the substance, the the same divine will, the same purpose as God. Each is distinct from the other. So the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. There's three, but there's only one God. Divine mystery that one day we'll get up close and maybe slightly understand it a little bit, a little bit more. So, three in one. So, what this means is that when we look at Jesus, we say he is God. He's the second member of the Godhead. Jesus is God. He is equal with God the Father, which is why in John chapter 10, verse 31, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. One. You know, folks, that that statement right there is ultimately what led to Jesus' execution. That sentiment from Jesus is what led to his crucifixion. Because when his contemporaries, when the people around him heard him say, I and the Father are one, they understood clearly what he meant to say. He was saying, I am God. Me and God are one and the same. And that's why the people around him, the Jew- Jewish religious leaders, threw him over to Roman hands and had, had him executed. They accused him of blaspheming. What we have to understand is that Jesus was no mere man. If Jesus was only some dude walking around in sandals 2,000 years ago, let me tell you, he was a lunatic on a scale that we rarely, if ever, have seen. He was—if he's not God— he was a lunatic, out of his gourd, out of his mind, slapping himself daily, just Looney Tunes, out of his gourd, because he claimed to be God. Well, how would you react if I walk up to you and say, like, "You know, I, I'm God"? What you think about that? Like, how would you react? Yes, I'm divine. I've existed. I've, I've no, no. Think about it seriously. I walk up to you and I'll I say, "I've existed forever." I wasn't created. I created you, in fact. Now, more than likely, you're going to look at me, and you're going to laugh. You're going to have me committed, right? Or at the very least, you're going to walk away and say, what a weirdo. What a freak. What a freak. And what we have to understand is that Jesus was no mere man. He wasn't a crazy, deranged man. He is the one and only eternal, immortal, all-knowing, all-good, all-wise, always-faithful, God. That's what the Bible says about Jesus. Truth number two. Truth number one, Jesus is God. Truth number two, Jesus is preeminent. Jesus is preeminent. So read uh, the next part of Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. It says, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. The word there, firstborn, does not refer to the fact that Jesus was actually, like, the first one born, it doesn't refer to Jesus being created. It refers to status. Jesus has the status, the preeminence, the privilege of someone who is the firstborn. He has the, the prestige that comes in a family with a firstborn in it. So you got to understand that back in old Bible days, Old Testament, and even New Testament days, there was a status that came from being the firstborn. They received the birthright of the family. They got the bulk of the fatherly blessing at the end of the father's life. They got the bulk of the inheritance. They had the status, the preeminence. They were superior because they were the firstborn. And so Jesus is preeminent over all of existence, over all of creation. He has exclusive rights as the firstborn. Rights to what? to creation. To creation. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, this is how the Hebrews begins. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all Things And it's right after that it says that everything was created. What's really cool in Scripture there is that Jesus was appointed heir of all things before there was anything. And what you have to understand is that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. Is that not what Scripture teaches us? The only begotten Son. So he has preeminence. He has status, privilege, prestige. He is, has the status of the firstborn and to him belong everything. There is not an inch in all the universe of which Jesus does not say, that belongs to me. Everything, and he knows it. It explains why he came and died for us, by the way. Why was Jesus so willing to go to a cross and shed his blood and die? It all belongs to him. He came to get what's his. Came to get what's his. All right, truth number three. Who is Jesus? Jesus is creator. Creator. Jesus is creator. Look at verse 16. For by him, Jesus, by him, all things, all things, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, were the thrones of dominions or rulers or authorities. And just in case we missed it, all things, again, all things were created through him and for him because it was promised to him before, right? So it was created for him, but it initially was created by him, through him, And and if you look back at the first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, it says that God speaks, right? God spoke the universe into existence. So God says something, words are pronounced, and things happen. Let there be light, and there's light. God speaks. He says. Words come out. Well, the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is the word of God. John chapter 1, verses 1 and 3 says... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things, again, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Is everyone clear on the all part? Is that pretty, that's pretty clear in Scripture, right? All things were created. All the, anything, it says right there in John, anything that was created was created by who? By Jesus, by the word, right? So Jesus is God. Jesus is creator. Jesus is uncreated. He has always been. He is uncreated. And if Jesus were not that, then this text would lie. John, would, John chapter 1 would be a lie. It would be an error. Colossians chapter 1 would be an error. Hebrews chapter 2 would be an error. And just Im- so it's one or the other. Either Jesus created all things, but he couldn't have created all things and not have been before. So like in, in, in Mormon circles, they say, no, 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 Jesus created all things. But, then, but they say Jesus was created. Well, then how can that which was not created create that which came into being? He would have had to have created himself before he existed. Because he would be included in the all things. Diagram that for me. If you can unpack that sentence. If Jesus is created. Because he would be included in the all things that were created by God, right? But it says in the Bible that Jesus created all things. So... He can't have it both ways. He can't be God and creator and uncreated at the same time. It's not possible. All right, number four. Truth number four. Who is Jesus? Jesus is sustainer. Jesus is sustainer. So verse 17 in Colossians chapter 1. And he is before all things. Before anything else there was Jesus because he's God. He existed in a time before there was even time. And it goes on. And in him all things hold together. All things hold together. What that tells us is that Jesus is not only the creator, Jesus is the sustainer. He maintains it. He upholds it. He manages it. He governs it. He binds it together. He keeps it doing what it's supposed to be doing. If not for Jesus's hand, oxygen would cease to be oxygen. If not for Jesus doing what he does, sustaining the universe, the the laws of avionics, Aviation, the, 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 these principles of lift that keep the airplane up would cease to work, which is why when I get on the plane every time, I actually pray, God, you are sustainable. I think please let lift work the way that it's supposed to. May there be high pressure on the wing where there needs to be, low pressure where there needs to be, because you are sovereign over the molecules and everything that is happening here. And please, no turbulence, by the way. If not for Jesus upholding, sustaining the universe, it would all completely unravel. Instantly. It would cease to be. It would dematerialize. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, He upholds the universe by the word of his power. I love what that verse says. He upholds the universe by the word of his power, what that tells us that Jesus doesn't even have to flex his muscles. It doesn't say by the power of his word. It says by the word of his power, which is to say that Jesus just sits in heaven and goes, Hey, by the way, universe, I'm Lord Almighty. I made you keep doing what you're doing, what I made you to do. And that is sufficient for the universe to do what it's supposed to do. Like that's the awesome, incredible power of our sustainer. They can simply whisper, and it's sufficient to hold everything. All right, number five, truth number five. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the head of the church. He's the head of the church. Verse 18 in Colossians 1 says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He's the head of the body, the church. Right, the head of the church is not a pastor, the head of the church, it's not the Pope. It's Jesus. Now, I, I don't care for titles, quite frankly, but, you know, sure, okay, I'm lead pastor. I don't like the title head pastor. I'm not knocking churches that have their, their head pastors the head pastor. I, I know they don't mean anything by it, but I am like, for me, theologically, I'm like, I don't want to be the head of anything. That's Jesus. I'm hands and feet just like everyone else. Right? We have different roles and stuff, but Jesus is is the head. So we're the body, we're the hands and feet of Jesus. We means we be active on his behalf here on earth. Just like our heads control our body, Jesus leads and guides his people. Just like our head, our brain controls what we do with the members of our body. So God, so Jesus as the head, he's the commander. We get our marching orders from him. He leads, he guides, he controls. We report to him. We are accountable to him. He leads us. And here, and now I'm going to speak to those of you who happen to actually know that you are in fact Christian, that you are a, a follower of Christ. To be part of the church, to be part of the the body of Christ, to actually be a follower, a true follower, a converted person, means by default and by definition that Jesus is Lord. He's the head. He's the leader. He's commander. He's general. He's the head, right? He is Lord of everything. What we do, how we do it why we do it, and when we do it. I, I was reading something kind of, it was a story, and it just, just kind of jumped out at me. It's a, a brand new uh, recruit in the Navy. And he was fairly new to the Navy, and um, he goes to a commanding officer, and he asks for a, a weekend pass, because he had a wedding to get to. And the commanding officer very generously, very graciously said, yeah, you can, you can get your pass. You can go and leave. And then the, the recruit Turned to him and said, I I said, what time do I have to be back? Because you know you have to ask. And the commanding officer said, make sure you are back by 7 p.m. on Sunday. And it took the recruit by surprise. He said, No, 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 you don't understand. I'm in the wedding. And the commanding officer bowed up a little bit and said, No, you don't understand. You're in the Navy. You get that? You don't understand. This is what I want. No, you don't understand. You enlisted. Your life belongs to this Navy, Jack. And so, Christians, if you are in fact a follower of Jesus, you have to understand this, and I do too. We serve at the privilege and the pleasure of Christ. We follow what he says. So, we don't serve on our own terms. We don't serve when it's convenient. We do so regardless of of whether it's easy or not we serve we do what he asks to do not because we have to but folks because we want to he's a loving and gracious and good god it's it's too easy for too many of us to simply make excuses well i've had a hard week my kids have the sniffles or when it talks to the financial question that's when it really gets tough right Okay, I know I'm supposed to give. I know I'm supposed to give to further the gospel and to support local ministry. I get that. But let me just pay off my Christmas debt real quick. And let me make sure I have enough in the bank for that uh, vacation next summer. And then, Lord, I'll give. No, Jesus, you don't understand. No, Jesus, you don't understand. And Jesus turns to us in those moments and says, no, you don't understand. You're in my Navy now. You're one of my soldiers. I lead. You do what, you ask, what I ask you to do. I ask you to jump. You know, folks, I wouldn't even say, you don't ask Jesus how high. You just jump as high as you possibly can. Right? Just jump. Just jump. Follow him. All right. Truth number six. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the resurrection. He is the resurrection. Look at the second half of verse 18. He is the firstborn from the dead and what the bible tells us in even non-biblical history so there are historians from the first century that will tell you this jesus was in fact crucified that is historical fact no one denies that jesus was crucified at all so he was crucified and his body was actually laid in a tomb so he died he didn't swoon right he didn't fake it he wasn't drunk He wasn't stupid, right? He died, his body then is wrapped in grave clothes, laid in a tomb. This ginormous boulder is laid on top of it and people walk away, Jesus is dead. And on the third day later, his eyes opened up, he took those grave clothes off, he stood up, pushed that boulder off to the side and walked up out of that tomb. that's good stuff. Folks, do you understand that the Christian faith has two two core tenets that if they're not true, our entire faith and belief system unravels and falls apart. One, the Trinity. If the Trinity is not true, Christianity is false. And number two, the resurrection. If the resurrection is not true, we are without hope. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14. If Christ has been raised then if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. It's all about the resurrection. I always, I've, I've, for years, I've gotten on Christians, uh, especially some from a certain stream or tradition of Christianity, where when we pray, we talk about Jesus on the cross and blood and death and stuff, and then that's it, and amen. Well, yeah, but it actually, there's a happy ending to the story. Like, don't leave Jesus bloody on the cross. He's the risen champion. We just sang that. Let faith arise. Our champion is not dead. He is alive. I mean, that's the, enti- that's the, the totality of our faith. Romans chapter 1 tells us that, that the resurrection is what proves that Jesus is in fact the Son of God. It proves that He is greater than the things in the world. It proves that He can be trusted it proves that he's greater than sin and death and the devil in darkness. It's all about the resurrection. All right, number seven. Truth number seven. Jesus is the God-man. Verse 19 says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So in this human Jesus, the God-man, Jesus was the God-man, right? Fully god Fully man, together, through the power of the Holy Spirit, supernaturally, in the womb of a virgin, was conceived this individual they were born, we know him as Jesus, and through that miracle, divinity and humanity were married together, they were united together, so that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Philippians chapter two verses five and seven says, "Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus who Though he was in the form of God, in other words, though he was God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself or he made himself nothing. How? By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And so then that leads to a profound question. Why would he who is God leave his throne? and enter into this world and be born like us and take human form and likeness? Why would he do such a thing? And here's the answer. To be our champion. To be our champion. That's truth number eight. Jesus is our champion. In verse 20, It says that Jesus took on form, why? To reconcile to himself all things. To reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. Making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is our champion because he made it possible for us to be reconciled with him. Jesus is our champion because he made it possible, he made a way for us to have peace with God. And so what the Bible teaches us is that we're all at war. We, we live at war with God. We come into this world at war with God, individually and collectively, As a race of living beings, we come into this world at war with God. We declared war on God in the Garden of Eden when Adam ate of the forbidden fruit, when he sinned against God. That was an act of treason. That was an act of rebellion against the Creator. Well, Adam was the first human, so he was our representative. So when he sinned, he plunged the rest of us right along with him. If our governing officials declare war on another nation, are we at war with another nation? Yes, absolutely. It's how it works, right? So he happened to be our representative in that moment. He declared war on God, and unfortunately, the rest of us get drudged up in that mess. So we are in this war. We live at this war with God, but it's not only because of Adam's sin, but because of our own sin, Because each and every one of us sin against God. And every sin, every act of disobedience is an infinite offense to God. An infinite offense against all holy God. God, every lie that we tell is a slap in the face to God. Like every time we lose our temper and we cuss someone out... You're cussing out God. Not that that person is God, but that anger reaction is ultimately, it's against God. You know, our sin, you may sin against me and I against you, but at the end of the day, we're sinning against God first and foremost. Psalm, uh, David in the Psalms, he's raped a woman and had her husband killed, and it says, God against you, I have sinned. So when we, we flip someone off on the highway, because they cut us off, folks, you're flipping off God. That inordinate anger, that cussing out, demeaning people and being condescending is being condescending toward him who is ultimate and superior above us all. Like the, the smoking of the weed, the visiting the porn site, the sleeping around, all of that. It's mocks God. Like everything, er, all of that is a missile launched against God. So we're at war. We live at war with him. But what we need is what? Peace. We need peace with God. We, we need to be in communion with our creator. We need harmony with him who is Lord of everything. What we need is for the hostility to end and for the friendship to begin. Fellowship. With God, we need reconciliation. And folks, we can't do that. We cannot reconcile ourselves to God. We need a champion to do it for us. We need Jesus to do it for us. Jesus is who reconciles us to God, who brings us into harmony with God. He himself said in in John chapter 14, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to me, no one comes to the Father but through me. He's the reconciler of everything. Our champion is this Jesus, this God-man. And he had to be man. He had to be born of a virgin and come into the world. He had to be man. He had to replace the first Adam. He had to become the second Adam, where the first one sinned and disobeyed and threw us into war with God. This one had to undo that, and he had to walk sinlessly, which is what the Bible tells us. He was tempted in every way, yet he never sinned. And so that qualifies him to be our representative. And in obedience to God, perfect obedience to the Father, he went to a cross because on the cross, sin had to be dealt with because God cannot ignore sin. God is holy, and sin demands justice to take place. It requires payment, folks. It requires blood. Sin requires death. By the very holy, just character of God, sin requires death. It requires blood. That's why Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Something has to die. Something has to die. And so here Jesus, in obedience to the Father and in great love, great love toward us, He went to a cross, and he sacrificed himself. He who is God opened up his veins and let his blood shed. And he gave his life that we may receive forgiveness, that we may now step into friendship with God. And he, it wasn't just that he had to be this man. He had to be God as well. Because what happened for three hours on that cross There's a specific three hours on that cross where Jesus is hanging there, battered and beaten and bruised, nailed onto wood, where for three hours, all the sins of humanity was placed upon the shoulders of Jesus. And there, God, in just and holy fury, unleashed wrath upon Jesus on account of our sin. And for three hours, Jesus dealt with all of our sin all at one time. And Jesus had to be God. Why? Because there's no way anything created could withstand that and survive. Nothing can stand in the way of divine judgment. So it, he had to be God. And, and so Jesus, having survived this wrath, this punitive wrath, having Paid for our sin on the cross, graciously, lovingly interjecting himself on our behalf, right? Like having paid for our sin as a final act of solidarity with us in fulfillment with the scriptures. Jesus says, it is finished. The three most beautiful words in all human language. It is finished. He breathed his last breath and he died. is the story over? No, because he's God. Because he's God, the story's not over. So three days later, again, his eyes open up, he stands up, he takes off the grave clothes, he pushes a big boulder aside, and he walks up out of the grave because he is Lord of life. And in that moment, what he did was he conquered sin, death, darkness. He took the keys from the devil. He says, you have no right, no authority, I'm here to free my people, to give peace to my people, to reconcile everything with me. And now, whosoever believes in the name of Christ, whosoever gives their life over to Him, whoever repents from their sin and receives the grace of God, they become a new person. They receive a new life. In that moment of conversion, where you actually place your faith in Jesus, He becomes your champion. He reconciles you to God, so that there's hope in eternity with Him forever and ever. Jesus is a champion who does not disappoint. You know, if you if you are like me and an ESPN junkie, you know we're I, I watch ESPN, and part of it's cool. I mean, you got all these sports heroes, right? these champions out there. And it's amazing what they can do for a while. But then you find out that they're cheaters. So Lance Armstrong, like highly they claim cyclists, and he's a cheater. How disappointing of a champion is that? You know, Tiger Woods, man, like at the peak of his game, it was like incredible to watch, and then he let his life just destroy it. Scandal. How disappointing. Mike Tyson, folks, there are few things I've enjoyed in my life as much as watching a Mike Tyson fight. That dude was fury. Listen, I'm all about Muhammad Ali, but I don't think Muhammad Ali could have stood up to Tyson. Dude, that dude, the power, the fierceness, he was the fighter of fighters. And out of nowhere, this nobody, nobody, Buster Douglas, no one knew who he was, pops him, knocks him out. He never recovered. And even those that do it right, even those who are not cheaters, even those who um, don't take steroids and don't get in scandal, guess what? Their knees are going to give out. Their reflexes get a little, sh- little less reflexy. <laughs> and then someone usurps them, right? Someone becomes the new champion. Like all our champions here on earth completely disappoint Jesus does not. He's undefeated and he's undefeatable. That's who Jesus is. And every religion, I said this at the beginning to close up, every religion has a champion. For Christianity, it's Jesus. Jesus is our champion, right? You know that every other religion on the planet shares the exact same champion it's you. It's me. We have to champion ourselves into the good graces of God. We have to work and effort ourselves into heaven. It's by our enlightenment and our knowledge and our our duty and all of this. It is by our works that we somehow champion ourselves into heaven. Folks, and that's quite frankly not possible. You can't champion yourself into the good graces of God. Are you kidding me? You can't champion yourself into this ultimate reality in the presence of God. Dude, we can't even keep a diet for seven days. I can't. I can't, I can't even stick to it. I'm going to work out six days a week. No, once if I'm lucky. Like it's, I, I can't even apply willpower on that level, and that's trivial. For every good deed, there's 100 bad ones. Man, we're argumentative and pugnacious and capricious and fickle. Man, we make life so hard. We sin constantly. We're not all-knowing. We're not all-powerful. Guess who is? Jesus. We need Jesus to be our champion. We need him to be our rescuer, our our deliverer. You know, the the problem of our sin doesn't lie within us. It It lies beyond us. It lies in this distinct champion that we know is Jesus Christ because he crushes death he heals marriages he removes addictions he wipes away tears he provides for us he gives us hope and joy and peace that's a good champion so the question is who's yours is it Christ are you trying to make yourself out to be champion? When you look at the truffle that is your belief and you open it up, what's on the inside? Are you the center of your life or is Jesus at the center of it? Who's your champion? I would ask you to make sure before we leave here today that it's Christ. He is the Prince of Peace. He's the Wonderful Counselor. He's the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. He's our Savior, our Redeemer, our Messiah, the Son of God, who loves us so much. He was willing to die that we may be reconciled to him. That is a champion worth celebrating. So I'm going to ask everyone just to bow your heads where you are and close your eyes and for you to respond to Christ where you are. And just real quick, just with eyes closed and heads bowed, just pray and evaluate. Is Christ your hero? Is he your champion? Do you rely on him? Or are you still trying to do it on your own? Maybe you realize this morning that you've never actually placed your faith in Christ. You've never done that for real. And you want to do that now. You recognize that you're a sinner in need of grace. God loves you. The cross proves that. Would you give your life to him who loves you so much? Would you do that now? If you are a follower of Christ, are you living with Him at the center of your life? With Him as the head of your life, as Lord of your life? Are there places in your life that you're holding back? Are there places where you're saying, but Jesus, you don't understand and what we all need to hear now is that very lovingly and graciously, Jesus says, no. No, my son, no, my daughter. You don't understand. What is it that you're holding back? What is it that you need to give to him? Is it a financial thing? Is it a time thing? A talent? You are the author and perfecter of our faith. You are our champion, our deliverer, our stronghold, our rock, our redeemer, our reconciler, our friend, our brother, our counselor, our prince, our king, our Lord. You are the resurrection. You are the head. All of this is yours. The very breath in our lungs belongs to you. The life in our hearts belongs to you. Everything belongs to you, Lord. So gracious and so kind and so compassionate and so loving. You desire for it to go well for us. You desire to do good for us. You're wise, so we can trust you. You are faithful. You never stop being faithful. You are trustworthy with everything in our lives, Lord. And if there's any doubt, we look to the cross. With arms open on the cross, you beg us to come to you and to kneel before you. To receive breath and life, to receive newness, to be refreshed. Lord, you're not only simply provider, protector in this life lord it is so much better than that it is protector and provider in the life to come life everlasting in your presence being showered by the riches of your glory at your feet lord i ask i beg i plead that if there's anyone in this room that even now recognizes they need to give their life to you that they would do so where they sit that they will see you with new eyes as their champion, as their Messiah. For the rest of us, Lord, may we live life knowing that you go before us and ahead of us as our champion, trusting you with every detail and moment of our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.